This is Current Eagle, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. And the fellow with a cracked voice is, uh, is me. I'm Jim Grant. And with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Welcome, Evan. And uh, Henry French is at the uh, control panel, as per usual. And with us today is Dan Rasmussen. He was uh, kind of the master of many things. You know, I, uh, I knew a guy named Lou Lehrman. This is indirect uh, introduction to the most formidable resume of Dan. And Lou Lehrman um, came of age for the draft. This would be early 1960s, I guess. They said such a thing as, as, as conscription, as selective service. You kind of had to serve in the military or, or present evidence while you're unfit. So um, Lou Lehrman goes to see his uh, local army recruiter. And uh, the sergeant asks him, so, uh, kid, what, uh, tell me about yourself. Well, Lou says, uh, see, I graduated... Uh, from Yale, uh, after going to the Hill School. I went to Hill School, then Yale. I was a distinguished scholar. And then I went to Harvard and uh, received my graduate. And the sergeant says, look, kid, I haven't got time for this. Either you're a liar or you ought to be a general. In any case, you're out of here. And uh, so uh, Dan Rasmus, I'll get around to Dan in a second, but his resume reminds me a little bit of Lou Lehrman's in 1962. But, Evan, as I was going to say before I interrupted myself, I want to comment uh, on the uh, the narrative, as we say now, the narrative surrounding the debt ceiling talks and the talk about the unprecedented nature of the prospective default on the federal debt. And I'm going to say that it would not be the first, it would not be unique, it would be the third. The first occurred in 1933, as the uh, British uh, newspapers said, uh, London papers said, it's the American default by which the price of gold into which the dollar was then converted went from $20.67 to 35 without consulting any single American creditor. That's one. And the second was in 1971, <clears throat> when the uh, U.S. Uh, declined um, to exchange any pieces of paper for gold at the statutory rate. So those are two defaults, and this would be a third. So I want to say that the United States is well-practiced in the art of default. Well, at least we have a game plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dan Rasmussen. Dan, welcome. And, um, okay, so I, I should explain your uh, resume. It's uh, first Harvard, then Stanford, but no Yale. Am I correct, Dan? No, no Yale. Okay. And um, uh, Dan is the uh, is founder, is it correct, Dan? Uh, founder? Yes. Okay. And will you tell our listeners, please, about your firm and what you do for a living before we begin the interrogation? Yes, absolutely. I, I uh, started and run an asset management call, firm uh, called Verdad, and, and we manage uh, a variety of different strategies. We uh, manage um, uh, small cap value strategies, the specialty in Japan. Uh, we manage some credit strategies, uh, and we also manage an opportunistic strategy that uh, we invest in, in times of crisis, uh, which we did last during COVID. And uh, we haven't had a chance to do that again since COVID, but uh, but perhaps uh, around the corner we'll have another shot at it. Yeah. As I read some of your recent material, you have now, or soon will have on your staff, um, actually an economist uh, from Yale, no, who is uh, an authority on crises before they happen. Yes, it's Sam Sam Hansen. He's at Har at, at Harvard. Oh, Harvard. Well, same, same thing, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, but yes, he's he's done work on on what he calls uh, predictable financial crises. Uh, and is is uh, somewhat of an expert on uh, on credit markets, uh, so he's it's a, a, a timely timely uh, uh, moment for him to to join us. Well, what does he think? Is this uh, if it's foreseeable? Does he foresee one? You know, it, he he he's uh, he's an academic, so he's cagey about such things. But if you if you use the methodology from his paper, uh, which um, uh, which uh, looks at uh, 
credit growth and asset growth as predictors of financial crisis. The U, the U.S. right now is in in what he uh, what his paper would call sort of the red zone, yeah. uh, where we've had you know way too rapid expansion of credit and assets, um, and that usually uh, pretends some sort of reckoning to come. Yeah, I, I think the paper uh, said the three year after the uh, peak is when the crisis is uh, most likely to happen. And I think his paper said it, uh, that peak was uh, at the end of 2020. Wouldn't that put right. the crisis kind of, you know, on calendar for this year? It, it would, yes. Although I still think it's 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 not a 100% probability. I think even even when you're in the red zone, it's maybe a 50% probability or something like that. So um, it's by no means a certainty, but certainly the, the chances of it happening are significantly higher given the backdrop we've had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dan, I think you first uh, came into my line of sight. Um, and I dare say it was a belated sighting because you had done so many things before this. But I remember so well, and we wrote about it uh, as if it were yesterday, a paper you did on uh, on private equity, and this was 2018, and it was the most persuasive piece of analysis I'd ever read on on the vulnerabilities and the pretensions of private equity. And I think the headline had something to do with uh, overhyped and overleveraged. Certainly overleveraged, and I dare say overhyped then, and perhaps at intervals following. Um, but the, the the gist of this, again, as I recall it, was that uh, private equity is kind of small cap or micro cap with a lot of leverage and that claims by the promoters to improve the operational efficiency of the businesses they uh, subsume and leverage, that claim is largely bogus. And could you, um, if, if that uh, summary is inadequate, please elaborate. And, and if you would, please bring us up to date on private equity. What's happened to it? And is it part of the prospective 50-50 um, financial difficulty we may have in 2023 or a year to be named later? Yeah. So, so, so private equity, you know, two defining characteristics of the asset class are, are size and leverage. So private equity is micro cap exposure. Um, the median market cap of a private equity deal is about 180 million or so. Um, and remember the large end of the micro cap index is 400 million, right? So these are really, really small companies. Uh, and uh, private equity is also distinguished by its use of leverage. Uh, generally, they are levering companies about 60 to 65% on a net debt to enterprise value basis. Uh, and those things have been true uh, since the 80s. Uh, private equity is always focused on smaller companies, um, companies too small for the private markets, uh, for the public markets, I mean, um, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are traded privately. Um, and they've always used debt, right? Originally, it was the leverage buyout industry. Um, and, and maybe in the 80s, you could get 90% leverage, but, uh, but that's come down over time. Um, and, and what I sort of noted uh, when I started my career in sort of around 2010 uh, was this shift where we call it 05, 06, you know, private equity went from being a really off the beaten path strategy that had been adopted by some leading endowments uh, to a pretty widespread strategy where everybody was plugging it into their asset allocation models. So huge amounts of money were raised in 05 and 06 um, and 07. Uh, and then after the financial crisis, I'd say the last decade has been the decade of the of the rise of of private equity um, to the point where you know large institutional consultants tell their clients they should have forty percent of their money in private equity, um, which is a truly you know astronomical share uh, given that this is microcap exposure. So forty percent of your portfolio in microcaps, right? To me, that seems uh, a, a little bit excessive, um, but that's the current uh, in vogue thinking among uh, smart asset allocators, um, and. Along with that very sharp increase in funds was a big shift in valuations. So it used to be true that 
uh, in private markets, you'd pay a 40% discount or so to public markets, which makes sense, right? You're buying smaller, riskier companies. Um, you're buying them sort of off the market, as it were, um, and you were getting them at a cheaper price. And you could exit them by selling them to public, big public companies. Um, but since the asset class really you know, became institutionalized, first prices converged. So by 05, 06, um, 07, you know, PE was paying the same price as, say, the S&P 500, even though the companies were a lot smaller and a lot riskier. Um, uh, they were trading for the same multiples. The arbitrage had been closed. Um, and what you've seen over the last decade is, uh, is, is a further shift to where private equity reliably pays higher prices than the S&P 500. Um, and along with paying higher prices than the S&P 500, um, you know, maybe, maybe 10, even 20% higher prices, um, because um, the prices are high, or maybe uh, you know it's a chicken and egg situation, but the the private equity firms themselves have therefore shifted into what they perceive as um, uh, above GDP growth industries that they think will grow faster than say the S and P five hundred constituents, um, and that means that um, uh, tech and healthcare technology, which used to be about ten percent of private equity, you know, pre twenty ten. Um, is now upwards of 50%. Um, and so what you've seen is the private equities shift from small cap value into small cap growth from you know traditional industries, industrials, and consumer discretionary and uh, into a, a big, big bet on, on technology. Um, and so what you're seeing now is, you know, private equity firms in 2021 and 2020 paying, you know, 18, 19, 20 times uh, gap EBITDA um, and putting, you know, eight, nine, ten turns of debt, net debt to EBITDA of debt on the balance sheet. Uh, and uh, by the way, most of that debt, which is coming from these newfangled uh, private credit uh, providers, which is its own, you know, dark story, um, it is mostly floating rate debt. And so I think you're at a situation now where multiples in public markets and in private equity have probably come down 20, call it 20 percent. Um, and the cost of debt, uh, that floating rate debt, has obviously gone, you know, way up. You know, maybe if they were borrowing it, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, it, it, I don't know what they would have been borrowing at right, right before the crisis, but nothing, uh, or, nothing. Or in 2021, maybe called 600, 700 basis points over treasuries, right? And now when treasuries were, you know, close to zero, and now they're close to 500 basis points, right? So this is a, a big material increase in, in debt costs for their portfolio companies. Uh, and so I think, you know, private equity is in a tough spot, right? There's this sort of vise where uh, multiples, exit multiples have come down, right? They pretty clearly can't sell companies for the same prices they paid for them in 18, 19, 20, 21. Um, and the blooms come off the rose a little bit for these technology companies that they they, they overloaded on. Uh, and second, the cost of debt has gone materially up at the same time. And, and I think that that puts uh, them in a pretty tricky uh, situation. Um, now, I've been uh, probably calling the private equity bubble since 2018, and and it hasn't uh, uh, blown up yet. So uh, maybe you can uh, dismiss me as uh, as uh, the boy who cried wolf. Uh, uh, and I think uh, there's certainly uh, uh, truth to the fact that I I thought private equity was in a bubble in 2018, and uh, what ended up happening is that um, tech, which is the large exposure, you know, that they were betting 50% of their portfolios on on technology and healthcare tech technology. Um, you know, ended up having this sort of blow off the top moment in 2020 uh, and 2021, uh, where 
uh, you know, if you thought you paid a crazy price any time before that, you know, you were still in the money because the prices just went crazier. Uh, but now things are starting to come down to earth and they're starting to be reckoning. And I think, uh, you know, the reckoning is going to be felt the worst by those who bought at crazy prices and bought at crazy prices with floating rate debt. Uh, Dan, in addition to your many other accolades, you uh, sit on an investment committee for an endowment. Um, when you wrote that 2018 article, you marveled at the fact that uh, private equity was then paying 11 times EBITDA for buyouts on average, up from 8.9 times in 2007, which was the prior peak. Before our conversation, Jim and I printed out a McKinsey report that says private equity paid 12.9 times EBITDA for buyouts last year and a peak of 13.2 times in 2021. So my question for you is, what were allocators thinking when they were giving out money to private equity funds to buy at these all-time records? And what are they thinking now, now that valuations have at least fallen in public markets, if not, um, you know, the marks of private equity uh, puts on their own portfolio companies? Yeah. And one one important thing to note about all those numbers, those those uh, EBITDA multiples that you mentioned, is that um, uh, they're, um, those numbers, the way they're built is off uh, what the private equity firms report. It's not off gap numbers. And so um, uh, uh, they're really, those are really pro forma EBITDA numbers, uh, and, and KPMG did a study called two years back, uh, on uh, the difference between pro forma and gap. And they generally found that, you know, gap, um, uh, EBITDA is about a third, uh, lower than pro forma EBITDA. Um, so if you multiply, you know, each of those numbers by 1.3 or so, you're, you're getting probably close to the gap numbers that would be comparable with public markets. Um, so uh, just like the marks uh, of private equity are, are somewhat BS, the reported valuations are also a, a, a BS um, because of this pro forma accounting thing. Well, well, in any case, the valuations are very high. But what did allocators think when they were putting money to work at these all-time high valuations, however high they were? And are they ruining this now? I mean, I, I know that private equity works on... Uh, on a, a commitment basis. So you commit maybe a billion dollars, but the private equity funds call that over time. So now these allocators are getting calls after they've already you know, committed money at very high multiples to companies that maybe aren't doing so great now. So, so what was the, the thought process, you know, two or three years ago and how are people approaching it today? Yeah. So, so I think that from a, an allocator's perspective, you know, private equity is the perfect investment, right? It has two characteristics. One characteristic is that, um, at least, um, historically, um, you know, with maybe a few exceptions, you know, almost every vintage year, private equity has beaten the public equity markets. And so if you're an allocator, you're saying, hey, I can get equity equal, equal or greater to equity returns. Uh, and by the way, the reported volatility on these uh, plus S&P 500 plus returns um, is uh, comparable to investment grade bonds. So, you know, probably the reported vol on PE is 10%, the S&P is 16 and small caps are 23 or 24, right? So, you know, that th th you're basically looking at an asset class that delivers, you know, an unbelievable sharp ratio um, and allows the investor to have a feeling of uh, quote unquote phony happiness, right? That nothing bad ever happens in private equity. The S&P is down 20, you know, private equity will be down 10. Why? Because they mark, you know, mark their own books. And so, you know, I think, when you look at it from my lens and you're saying, hey, look at these valuations, look at these leverage levels, you know, look at, you know, you know borrowing seven or eight times net debt to EBITDA is insane. You know, that feels like triple C rated credit to me and uh, and it's floating rate. And what if interest rates rise or, you know, these valuations are insane and the industry concentration is insane. You know, who would put their portfolio, you know, 50 percent into technology? Um, uh, and, you know, I think that's one perspective. And the other perspective is 
uh, every one of my peers is taking their exposure from 30 to 35% uh, to this asset class that said magically good returns and magically low risk. Uh, and I'd be crazy not to do more of it. Uh, and so I think there's a huge gap between uh, those uh, look at this uh, in, in, from my analytical lens and, and the vast majority of practitioners for whom this is the best thing since sliced bread. I recall us having a discussion a couple of years ago, and I think you confess that you were a little bit of an enfant terrible at Stanford University, that you were not the guy, the professor, delighted to see walk into his classroom because there'd be a lot of tough questions from the back of the room. Now, is that uh, is that fairly recollected? <laughs> it is. Okay, okay. So given that, I, it's not surprising to me or to Evan, I think, that Verdad seems to be in the opposition wing in finance. Now, there is a, a mainline, momentum-driven, narrative-friendly, and uh, hype-embracing wing that makes the money. And those of us in the principled opposition don't mind not making so much of it because we at least can look at ourselves in the mirror while we shave. Isn't that right, Evan? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, is now is that a fair characterization a little bit of the mindset of Verdot? Are you people actually as contrary-minded, as bloody-minded, and as uh, indefatigable in your analysis as it would seem from this podcast so far? <laughs> That's nice of you to say, Joe. I, I think there are two sides to that. I, th I think obviously we're we're very, uh, we, you know, uh, uh, there's one thing I, I take on faith, which is the resurrection of our Lord and everything else. I want to see the data. And uh, and I think that we have a very principled approach to analyzing that data, which often leads us to uh, to tangential conclusions. But, uh, you know, as, as you put it, um, the last few years in the U.S. equity market um, have made me wish I was a fad enthusiast because being a, being a disciplined value investor or, or noting things like, wow, Japan looks really, really cheap um, has led you to dramatically underperform things like uh, the AI or ARK Invest, uh, you know, uh, much less than now. NASDAQ. So it's uh, it's a, a funny, uh, funny thing to be in the opposition. What do, the last yeah. Few what years. do we do about this? Uh, you know, I think I think uh, I think the reckoning is coming. I mean, I, I think that you can't look at uh, from a historical perspective, um, look at, you know, where valuations are today or relative valuations and not come to the conclusion that the closest analog to where we are today is 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 1999 or 2000, um, which is, uh, you know, probably my my view uh, to some extent of where we are. Speaking of analogs, and I, I, I'm not sure if you had this in mind when you wrote the um, somewhat spicy headline over uh, a piece about uh, low profitability and uh, and high hype stocks being on a tear. But the headline, ladies and gentlemen, was Revenge of the Turds. Yeah, that's T as in tango. And uh, it's a piece about garbage stocks. Now, do you know, Dan, uh, do you know when, uh, what era the phrase garbage stock was coined? I don't. It was 1960, late 60s. We call it the Great Garbage Market. And huh. in preparation for this uh, performance today, I actually uh, went on my phone <laughs> and, uh, and typed in Great Garbage market. This was, I think, this was a an Adam Smith, maybe, uh, who wrote uh, the author wrote in the pseudonym Adam Smith. He wrote the Money Game and uh, like that. And uh, it was a great garbage market of 1968, perhaps. And you know what came up? It's a great, the great garbage ocean. Is that about plastics in the Pacific? Oh, it's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> hey, phone. <laughs> uh, this windy preface to a question is all about the nature, uh, the recurrent. Uh, cyclicality. I guess I'm re being redundant, but the cyclicality of markets, nothing is ever exactly pristinely new, no? Yes, yeah, so history repeats itself. And, uh, you know, I think 
you know, I, I think like like you, Jim, although in a much less distinguished way, I I I, I see myself as a historian of the market, or that's what what interests me because I I think that in order to get to truth and you know, or at least what you might think of as truth in the market. Um, you have to look across multiple cycles and look across history and find analogs and think about base rates and say, you know, how have similar things worked in the past? Um, and uh, that's what makes me so skeptical of these, you know, what high profit, you know, low profitability, high investment, uh, hype driven things. I mean, I, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, food delivery on demand or, um, you know, electric trucks or, you know, whatever it might be, I, I'm uh, 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 aviation, you know, those uh, uh, air, you know, uh, vertical takeoff and landing aviation, flying taxis or whatever the heck they are, you know, that, that stuff I'm just inherently skeptical of because the history of, um, of stocks that look like popular science covers has been, uh, you know, a disaster. Um, except for the last few years. Yeah, when, except for, uh, except for your investment career. <laughs> so, so Dan, in terms of garbage stocks, we have a lot of analogs for what happens when kind of trashy companies without really good financials and good earnings power, like, get overvalued. They, they fall. They, they sometimes crash. And the 1970s was a market which kind of treaded sideways for a decade, despite inflation being very high. After the dot-com peak, we had the dot-com crash. We have not, at least I don't know of a good analog, for a crash in private equity. Right now, I, McKinsey says... Oh, the, I, yeah. what was the phrase, Dan? Leveraged buyouts. Yeah, yep. look at uh, 1989, 90, 91. That was that was uh, an analog. Uh, Nabisco. H how do you think this private equity bubble plays out? Uh, is it like the 1980s where certain firms like KKR are kind of kicked out of fundraising for you know seven or eight years as they kind of you know digest their problems? Is it like hedge funds where after peaking you know before the Great Recession they just kind of treaded sideways for a decade? Or is this something like is going to cause a sudden crash because as you pointed out. The typical buyouts leverage, you know, six to nine times EBITDA. A large proportion of that funding is through variable rate debt. And, you know, the reference rate so far has increased by 500 basis points over the last year. Is this a drawn out thing? Is it a boom? Is it how, yeah, how do you? You know, it's hard to it's hard to answer. And I think, um, you know, the the, the really, um, you know, because private private equity now is largely funded by private credit on the debt side. So. You know, you have, um, you know, KKR doing a deal that's funded by debt from Aries or something, right? So you you have these um, these private lenders and, and and the source of their capital, by the way, is the endowed institutions and pension funds who, um, you know, who who fall for what I call fool's yield, um, and they, you know, are, um, you know, what's interesting about private credit is that they advertise very very low default rates. Um, and Cambridge Associates did a great study um, where they said, well, wait a second, um, your default rates are very low, but your amendment rates are very high. So yes, you didn't force them into default. You uh -huh. said, gee, you don't have to pay. You know, you don't, we're just going to amend the terms of the loan so you don't have to pay for a few uh, quarters or whatever it might be, right? And that if that kind of is a default. So if you define amendments as defaults, then actually the default rate of private credit looks a lot like single B or even triple C credit. Um, which would make sense given the uh, in yields and the interest rates. So I think what um, you have to see then is that there's an incentive um, uh, for both the private equity fund and the private credit fund to kick the can down the road and to hope for better days. And so you know it's 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 hard to um, it's hard to predict a scenario in which there's sort of a dramatic blow up because none of this is priced by a market and um, uh, or subject to a run because how do you get your money out of a private equity fund or a private credit fund? You can't. Uh, I think the more likely scenario is this long, you know, uh, letting out of the air, uh, out of the tires um, as returns kind of flatline or go negative for a few years. Um, and I think 
the interesting thing is I just think there's such a mismatch between um, uh, between what asset allocators think they're getting and expect to get from a return perspective and what the you know basic fundamentals of the transactions they're executing on would imply uh, would would hold for the future. Yeah, Dan, I I can't help but think that you are a yes but guy in a gee whiz world, and I want you to know that that's no crime in this office, right, Evan? No. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um, but let's uh, let's stop uh, flogging private equity, which seems not to know when it's licked. It ought to have known that in 2018 <laughs> with the publishing of a very fine essay. But uh, let's talk about things that uh, do look enticing. Uh, um, a couple of I guess maybe two weeks ago, we talked to a, an associate of yours, Dan, who had just done a very interesting um, analysis of the opportunities in in Europe. It was all it was all paradox and uh, and the unexpected. You know, like a, a Europe, a sleepy Europe, the outdoor museum of Europe is uh, generating better margins uh, than uh, than tech and, uh, and better yeah, returns. I, I, I believe it had like a better uh, lower earnings drawn down last year than the Nasdaq. A better margin retention yeah, last year than yeah, Nasdaq. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so so tell it. Let's let's start with with uh, with Europe. Could you reprise uh, some of uh, what uh, I have been trying to describe and tell us where the opportunity lies and what the risks yeah, might be? Exactly. I mean, so so you had you had this uh, phenomenon last year where um, because of the war in Ukraine and the and the energy issues associated with Russia. Um, Almost everybody, you know, myself, I confess, included, thought that Europe was headed into an inevitable and deep recession, uh, and uh, it turned out that the energy crisis uh, was manageable, uh, and it turned out that European companies were a lot more resilient than you would have thought. Um, and you fast forward to today, you know, European stocks have beaten the Nasdaq. I think over the past, you know, six to twelve months, um, uh, the profits certainly have held up better. Margins have been better. Uh, in terms of uh, the change year over year. And so you're looking at a situation where where actually, if you said to me a year ago, you know, who, who would do better, you know, European companies or the NASDAQ, you would have said, you got to be crazy. You know, Europe is just uh, on a certain doom. But what's actually happened is that you've had a normalization of the crazy tech earnings. Um, and so you've seen a pretty big decline for a lot of those companies in terms of their revenues and profits and margins. Um, and Europe has held up quite well and even grown in some cases as companies recovered from, you know, I think the scale of last year but these um, these, are, and, these are mainly cyclical companies are they not the ones that have done so well yes 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 and, and, and that's a familiar story right I mean value investing is is, is, is about expectation errors and so when you see a big uh, error of uh, a difference between reality and expectation that's when value investors make money and and the expectation for Europe were so bad and the reality has been okay to good um, and that's driven a, a massive rally in the in the share prices. Um, and you look today, and Europe is still remarkably cheap. I mean, I mean, I think that there's just this been um, this broad dynamic over the last ten years, um, which every asset allocator is aware of, where um, international money is, uh, you know, in, international equities have just been dead money relative to the U.S., and it's just been disappointment after disappointment. And I think everyone, um, uh, you know, people have adapted to that, and they've just kind of come up with rationalizations, right? The U.S. is more innovative; it's better run, um, shareholder more shareholder friendly, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, you know, why do you why would you invest, uh, you know, in Europe, which is, you know, sleepy and dull and, uh, you know, it's a museum um, uh, or, and, or in no, Japan. And no you know. baseball. Japan's got baseball. No baseball <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe it's marginally better. 
uh, and that's created this opportunity where where these these firms are you know undercapitalized and they just haven't had the same flows and they're value much cheaper and you're getting you know largely the same type of company with the same type of growth prospects for a lot lower price and I think that's what's really driven uh, a lot of the recovery this year in European equities. Could you give us a couple of four instances about companies that strike you as maybe epitomizing the opportunity in Europe? We talked to Brian Chingono about this. And I can't remember exactly the companies he mentioned. If you can't, I'm not going to hold that against you because I can't. Yeah, I mean, I think one 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 example on on the spicier, riskier end, and I know I'm always attracted to those types of names, so that's why it's at the top of my mind. Is is Ericsson, which makes all the 5G technology, the Nokia. Um, uh, and Huawei make all the 5G technology that Verizon's and AT and British telecoms and all those use. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a company which to me, you know, 5G demand seems to be going up, if not stable. And they're the leading producer of it. But the stock trades that, you know, five times EBITDA or something like that, uh, in part because it's in Europe and in part because they've had a series of uh, of, of scandals. But um, but that's a, a prime example. But there are so many others. I mean, on the auto side, you have, you know, Stellantis, which is just insanely cheap. Um, but a lot of automakers are cheap. Um, uh, I mean, they're not you know, all of them, right, Evan? <laughs> not all. Of them. I, I can think of at least one that has a pretty high multiple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, if you're willing to go for one that does isn't 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 magic and run by a wizard, then uh, then <laughs> then Stellantis is is for you. Dan, tell us about Japan. Yes. So so Japan, you know, is probably my my favorite. Uh, 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 fav- one of my favorite topics and favorite places to invest. And in, as a firm, we're massively overweight Japan and have been for for years. Uh, and uh, you know Japan's a, a fascinating phenomenon. So I, I think you know there, there there are a few big things to know about Japan and, and sort of where they are in the macro economy right now uh, in the macroeconomic cycle. You know the first big thing to know is that they had uh, they were hit by two really bad things. Uh, the first was the China trade wars that started really in 2018, um, and then second was um, COVID. And Japan uh, had, it, 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 you know, if you if you thought you know uh, um, Australia or uh, you know Michigan was bad, you know uh, Japan was was crazy in terms of their COVID reaction. So they didn't actually reopen their borders to foreign travel um, until November of 2022. Um, so the island was effectively sealed off from uh, March of 20 to November of 2022. Um, and tourism and uh, and and travel, you know, accounted for about eight percent of GDP uh, in Japan, and so you 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 had this just massive self-inflicted, in my view, wound uh, to the country based on on bad COVID policies um, and on the China trade wars, and so you you basically saw you know peak earnings for Japan were probably 2017, uh, 2017 or 2018. And we're just getting back to the point where, you know, maybe 2023 numbers will be better than that. So you've had this sort of lost half decade from a profit perspective. And now you're starting to see this recovery where tourism is coming back, where travel is coming back, where, you know, trade is recovering. Um, and that, you know, big shift in economic prospects in a normally slow growth environment, uh, coupled with, you know, Japan being just astonishingly, astonishingly cheap, you know, cheap relative to its own history, um, cheap uh, relative to the U.S. by far. Um, uh, you know, it's just there's no metric possibly in which you can look at Japan and not say this is a bargain. Um, even dividend yields, which Japan is famous for having, you know, bad um, uh, bad capital allocation and, and 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 lower, you know, dividend payout ratios and things like that. And now even dividend yields are higher in Japan than the United States. 
Um, and so you're you're you you've got this you know crazily uh, cheap country where the economic prospects look very different from a lot of places in the world where you're in the midst of the reopening trade uh, still um, where inflation really isn't a problem um, and where I think there are um, you know multiple positive catalysts that are occurring uh, sort of simultaneously against a backdrop of extra- extraordinarily cheap valuations. And Japan has long been uh, the place where there are cheap equities that stay cheap. But in the last decade, starting under Kuroda, but continuing even through this year, they've made major progress in trying to improve corporate governance. And even this January, the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange sent out a letter threatening companies trading under book value that you better do something to improve it, including increasing your dividend yield or increasing buybacks. And after the latest rash of earnings, we've actually seen a lot of companies like Hitachi, uh, Fujitsu do uh, very large buybacks or increase their dividends pretty substantially. Yes. I mean, I thought that was one of that that central bank governor statement. I mean, that was just one of the all time greats, you know, getting mad at companies for having too low price to book multiples. I mean, it was just great. You know, if you have a a price to book multiple below one, you know, you're in trouble. I mean, it's it was just a great, a great moment. So classically Japanese. Um, and but but it's 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 real. I mean, it's just kind of absurd. And I think the you know other thing to be aware of in Japan is that um, it's it's very prestigious in Japan to be a public company. It's um, and so there's a huge number of public companies, and they stay public forever. So you know, in the U.S., you know, you you look up companies <laughs> and they've been listed for five years and renamed seven years ago or whatever. And in Japan, you you know, you're buying you know Janome Sewing Company, which was founded in 1892, and you know maybe it's it doesn't do sewing machines anymore or whatever, but it's still public under the same name and has been you know public for 30 years. And, and, and was founded in 1890. And so you have just this very different dynamic in Japan where you just have this huge, huge long tail of small companies that are public. You know, they're, they're probably the same number of listed tickers in Japan as there are in the United States. Um, and so there's just a huge variety of different things to choose from um, and that are quite fun uh, in, as a foreigner to learn about. Uh, one of my favorite examples is there are uh, we're, 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 um, uh, we've been invested in this uh, Japanese wedding companies. Um, and you say, you know, what in heaven's name is a wedding company. Um, but in Japan, uh, they don't have, uh, you know, American churches, uh, uh, but everyone has seen Hollywood movies with, uh, you know, church weddings. And so there's a huge demand in Japan for church weddings. So these wedding companies have gone and built fake churches all around Japan where you can go and get married. Uh, and they have themed weddings. You know, you can get um, a monster hunter themed wedding in a fake American church in the middle of Tokyo. See, I mean, it's just kind of you, totally so, nuts. So you're short this thing, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're we're long. Oh, Jim. I see. I see. Hey, um, so Some, sometimes maybe my contrarianism <laughs> takes me too far. I admit. Sounds it sounds like uh, you know, 500 Las Vegas is uh, guy. Anyway, so <laughs> tell me about the risk that the Bank of Japan's most radical protracted policies actually work and the inflation they have rooted for low these uh, uh, low this generation materializes and the not problematic 3% inflation turns into 4, 5, 6, could happen, has happened in some places we know. Meanwhile, yeah, they, I mean, they're, I, wait, they're, meanwhile, meanwhile, their 10-year yield is pegged at uh, 47 basis points, I think. And so interest rates in Japan go from 2, 3, 4, 5. And um, they're the equities that look cheap now, but they might be considerably cheaper if, as and when, the inflationary embers take real fire. Yeah, I think I think that's certainly a, certainly a risk. Um, and I, you know, I think obviously it's um, it's salient because that's what happened in the U.S. where we copied Japanese policies and they had a, a rather bad uh, consequence. But I think what probably reassures me is that you know on a, on a sort of relative basis, Japan didn't have anywhere near the COVID spending blowout that the United States has. So 
you know, the bad things that Japan has, you know, you and I would think were bad things that the central bank has been doing. They've, they've kind of been doing forever. And it's not like it's accelerated in any meaningful way or that they went crazy into, you know, for the last two years. Um, they, they were sort of steady Eddie on the well, same track. They, they went crazy buying JGBs. My goodness. They spent well, how much, what percent of GDP, a million percent or something? Anyway, I'll, I, I think they own almost the entire stock of 10 year JGBs. Yeah. And in fact, I think they maybe own like more than 100% because they lend out the bonds to banks and then buy them back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, this has been a, a great conversation with somebody who is just as bloody minded, I think, as, as you are, Evan. And it, it, it's, it's, it's surprising to meet someone <laughs> like this. <laughs> but Dan Rasmussen is a, a published author, uh, entrepreneur, um, uh, alumnus of only the best institutions, and a guest on Current Yield, Grand's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. So thank you for all those things, Dan, especially the latter. My pleasure. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was a delight. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk soon. This is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Mm -hmm.